0: Section 7 of Roman History the Early Empire by William Wolf Cape's this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by Pamela Nagami chapter 2 tiberius ad 14 to 37 part 3 meanwhile sejanus ruled at rome with almost absolute power his master's seemingly unbounded trust made soldiers senators informers vie with each other in submissive service. His favor was the passport to preferment. His enmity was followed by a charge of treason or a threatening missive from Capri to the Senate. All classes streamed to his antechambers with their greetings, and the world of Rome flattered, feared, or hated him. The emperor heard all intelligence through him, colored and garbled as he pleased, Approved his counsels, re echoed his suspicions, and daily resigned more and more of the burden of rule into his hands. There had been no sign of mistrust, even when he had asked for the hand of Lavilla, the widow of the murdered Drusus, though consent had been delayed and reproof of his ambition hinted. Yet, wary as Sejanus was, he could not hide from envious eyes the pride and ambition of his heart. He grew haughtier with the confidence of power, and men whispered that in moments of self-indulgence he spoke of himself as the real autocrat of Rome and sneered at his master as the monarch of the isle. But that master's eyes at length were opened. His brother's widow, Antonia, long retired from public life, had kept a watchful eye on all that passed and sent a trusty messenger at length to warn him. He saw his danger instantly, felt it with a vividness that seemed to paralyze his will and stay his hand. For many months, we have the curious picture of the monarch of the Roman world brooding, scheming, and conspiring against his servant. For months, his letters were so worded as to keep Sejanus balanced between fear and hope. Sometimes he writes as if his health were failing, and the throne would soon be vacant sometimes promotes his friends and loads him with caresses, and then again his strength is suddenly restored and he writes fretfully and sternly. The Senate is kept also in suspense, but notes that he no more calls the favorite his colleague, and that he raises a personal enemy to be consul. The bolt falls at last. Suddenly there arrives in Rome a certain macro with letters from Capri for the Senate, he carries the commission in his pocket, which makes him the new prefect of the guard, and has been told to concert measures with Lacco, the prefect of the watch. He meets Sejanus, by the way, alarmed to find that there is no message for himself, and reassures him with the tale that the letter brings him the high dignity of tribunician power. While Sejanus hurries in triumph to the senate house, Macro shows his commission to the Praetorians and sends them to their quarters far away, while Laco guards the Senate House with his watch. The reading of the Emperor's letter then begins. It is long and curiously involved in style, deals with many subjects, with here and there a slighting word against Sejanus, to which, however, he pays scant attention, as his thoughts are occupied with the signs of favor soon to follow suddenly comes the unlooked-for close. Two of his nearest intimates are denounced for punishment, and he is to be lodged at once in prison. Those who sat near had slipped away from him meantime. Lacco with his guards is by his side, while the Senate rises on all sides and vents in angry cries the accumulated hate of years. He is dragged off to his dungeon. The people on the way greet him with savage jeers, throw down the statues raised long since in his honor, and the Praetorians in their distant quarter make no sign. The Senate takes courage to give the order for his death, 31 A.D., and soon all that is left of him is a name in history to point the moral of an unworthy favorite's rise and fall. His death rid Tiberius of his fears, but was fatal to the party who had looked to Sejanus as their chief, and possibly had joined him in treasonable plots against his master. Post after post brought the death warrants of fresh victims. His kinsmen were the first to suffer. Then came the turn of friends and tools. All who owed to him their advancement, all who had shown him special honor, paid the hard penalty of their imprudence. The thirst for blood grew fiercer daily, for the wife of Sejanus on her deathbed told the story of the poison of which Drusus had died, and the truth was known at last. Tiberius had hidden his grief when his son died, and treated with mocking irony the citizens of Ilium, who came somewhat late with words of condolence, telling them that he was sorry that they too had lost a great man named Hector. But the grief he had then not shown turned now to thirst for vengeance, On any plea that anger or suspicion could dictate fresh names were added to the list of the accused till the crowded prisons could hold no more. The Praetorians, whose loyalty had been mistrusted, were allowed to show how little they had cared for their commander by taking wild vengeance on his partisans. The populace also roamed the streets in riotous mobs to prove their tardy hatred for his memory. In a passage of the Emperor's memoirs that has come down to us, we read the charge that the fallen minister had plotted against Agrippina and her children. We may compare with this the fact that the order for the death of the second son was given after the traitor's fall. He was starved to death in the dungeon of the palace after trying in his agony to gnaw the bed on which he lay, and the notebook of his jailer gave a detailed account of his last words and dying struggles. At Capri also there was no lack of horrors. There, too, the victims came to be tried under his eye, it is said to be even tortured, and to glut his thirst for bloodshed. He watched their agonies upon the rack and was so busy with that work that when an old friend came from Rhodes at his own wish, he mistook the name of his invited guest and ordered him, too, to be tortured like the rest. Some asked to be put out of their misery by speedy death, but he refused, saying that he had not yet forgiven them. Even in trifling matters, the like severity broke out. A poor fisherman climbed the steep rocks at Capri to offer him a fine lobster. But the emperor, startled in his walk by this unbidden visitor, had his face gashed with its sharp claws to teach him more respect for rank. Nor is it only cruelty that stains his name. Sensuality without disguise or limit, unnatural lusts too foul to be described, debauchery that shrank from no excess, these are the charges of the ancient writers that brand him with eternal infamy. Over these, it may be well to drop the veil and hasten onward to the close. At length it was seen that his strength was breaking up, and the eyes of the little court at Capri turned to Gaius, the youngest son of Agrippina and Germanicus, whom, though with few signs of love, he had pointed out as his successor. The physician whispered that his life was ebbing, and he sank into a swoon that seemed the sleep of death all turned to the living from the dead and saluted him as the new emperor, when they were startled with the news that the closed eyes were opened and Tiberius was still alive. But then, so ran the tale all Rome believed, the prefect Macro bade the young prince be bold and prompt. Together they flung a pillow on the old man's head and smothered him like a mad dog as he lay." The startling story of his later years is given with like features in the pages of three authors, Tacitus Suetonius and Dion Cassius, and none besides of ancient times describe his life or paint his character with any fullness of detail. But modern critics have come forward to contest the verdict of past history, and to demand a new hearing of the case. We must stay, therefore, to see what is the nature of their plea." They remind us that at the worst it was only the Society of Rome that felt the weight of his heavy hand. Elsewhere, they say, through all the provinces of the vast empire his rule was wise and wary. His firm hand curbed the license of his agents, he kept his legions posted on the frontiers, but had no wish for further conquests, and in dealing with neighboring powers relied on policy rather than on force. The shelter that he offered to the fugitive chiefs of Germany and the pretenders to the Eastern thrones gave him always an excuse for diplomacy and intrigues, which distracted the forces that were dangerous. Provincial writers like Strabo the geographer, Philo the philosopher, and Josephus the historian, speak of his rule with thankfulness and fervor, and the praises seem well-founded till we come to the last years of his life. Then, says Suetonius, he sank into a sloth which neglected every public duty. He would not sign commissions, nor change the governors once appointed, nor fill up the vacancies that death had caused, nor give orders to chastise the neighboring tribes that disturbed the border countries with their forays. It is true the empire was so little centralized as yet, and so much free life remained in the old institutions of the provinces that distant peoples scarcely suffered from the torpor of the central power, and once relieved from the abuses of the old republic, were well content if they were only left alone. Still, the degradation of Rome, if real, must have reacted on them, for she attracted to the centre the notabilities of every land. She sent forth in turn her thought, her culture, and her social influence and the pulsations of her moral life were felt in countries far away. The heroism of her greatest men raised the tone of the world's thought, and examples of craven fear and meanness surely tended to dispirit and degrade it. If we return now to the details of his rule at home, what evidence can his defenders find to stay our judgment? They can point to the contemporary praises of Valerius Maximus A literary courtier of the meanest type, and to the enthusiastic words in which Vellius Paterculus speaks of his old general's virtues. But the terms of the latter do not sound like a frank soldier's language. The style is forced and subtle, and the value of his praises of Tiberius may well be questioned when in the same page we find a fulsome flattery of Augustus and Sejanus that passes all bounds of belief. We may note also that his history ends before the latter period of his reign begins. In default of testimony of a stronger kind, attention has been drawn to the marks of bias and exaggeration in the story commonly received, to the wild rumors wantonly spread against a monarch who had never won his people's love, and lightly credited by writers who reflected the prejudices of noble coteries offended by the unyielding firmness of his rule. On such evidence it has been thought enough to assume that the memoirs of Agrippina, Nero's mother, blackened the name of Tiberius and had a sinister influence on later history. To imagine a duel of life and death between the imperial government and the partisans of the widow and children of Germanicus. To believe, but without proof, that the chief victims of the times were all conspirators who paid the just forfeit of their lives, to point to the malignant power of Sejanus, and to fancy that the real clemency of Tiberius took at last a somber hue in the presence of universal treachery. Whence this strange mania of disloyalty can have come is not made clear, nor how it was that of the twenty trusted senators chosen for the Privy Council Only two or three were left alive, nor why Drusus, the son of Germanicus, was murdered when the fall of Sejanus had removed the tempter. Nor can the stories of the debauchery at Capri be lightly set aside without disproof. They left a track too lurid on the popular imagination. They stamped their impress, even in vile words, on the language of the times, and gave a fatal impulse to the tendencies of the corrupted art that left the records of its shame among the ruins of Pompeii. It may seem strange, indeed, as has been urged, that a character unstained for many years by gross defects should reveal so late in life such darker features, but we have no evidence which will enable us to rewrite the story of these later years, though on some points we have reason to mistrust the fairness of the historians whose accounts alone have reached us they do seem to have judged too harshly acts and words which admit a fair and honorable color. Their conclusions do not always tally with the facts which they bring forward, and seem sometimes inconsistent with each other. The number and details of the criminal trials which they describe often fail to justify their charges of excessive cruelty in the Emperor, in many of their statements as to his secret feelings and designs, must have been incapable of proof. It was probably from prudence, and not from mere irresolution, that the prince continued his provincial governors so long in office. It may have been from true policy rather than from jealousy that he recalled Germanicus from useless forays on the borderlands, from good sense rather than from want of spirit, that he discouraged all excessive honors to himself. In these and many like cases, Tacitus and other writers may have given a false reading of his motives, as they have certainly reported, without weighing, the scandalous gossip that blackened the memory of a ruler who discredited his best qualities by ungracious manners, and often made his virtues seem as odious as his vices. But of the natural character of his younger years, we know little. We see him trained in a school of rigid repression and hypocrisy. Cowering under the gibes and censures of Augustus, wavering between the extremes of hope and fear, tortured by anxiety at Rhodes, drilled afterwards into an impassive self restraint, till natural gaiety and frankness disappeared. When power came at last, it found him soured by rancor and resentment, haunted by suspicion and mistrust, afraid of the Senate and Germanicus, and yet ashamed to own his fears too keen-eyed to relish flattery, yet dreading any show of independence, curbed by his mother, and spurred on by Sejanus into ferocity inspired by fear, with an intellectual preference for good government, but still with no tenderness or sympathy for those whom he ruled. Possibly the partisans of Agrippina troubled his peace with their bold words and seditious acts, or even conspired to set her children in his place— And drove him to stern measures in his own defence. At length, when the only man whom he had fondly trusted played him false, his old mistrust settled into a general contempt for other men and for the restraints of their opinion. These safeguards gone, he may perhaps have plunged into the depths of cruelty and lust and self-contempt which made Pliny speak of him as the gloomiest of men, tristissimus hominum and led him to confess in his letters to the Senate that he was suffering from a long agony of despairing wretchedness. Even from the distant East, we read, came the scornful letters in which the King of Parthia poured reproaches on the cruelty and debaucheries of his brother Emperor of the West. End of Section 7